Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Unfortunately, my good colleague Dale Stenberg won't be with us today because he had a, a family issue he had to attend to, but I'm delighted to be joined again today by my good friend Patrick Steffen, Dr. Patrick Steffen, who uh, 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 is, a, is a chaplain in the U.S. Army, uh, teaches a couple of courses with Davenant Hall, and also uh, does some courses with RTS in Washington, D.C., and who has a background, uh, as we learned last time he was on, in early Christian studies and New Testament, which is relevant today. We asked, uh, we asked uh, Patrick to come on because we wanted to talk about this new book by Matthew Thiessen, Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism, uh, a fairly significant work that came out with Baker Academic uh, last year. Uh, and we wanted to we wanted to engage its thesis and have somebody on who who could engage it with a greater degree of knowledge and uh, uh, with a, 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 a greater professional pedigree, if you will. So, Patrick, thanks for being here with us today. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm good to have you again. Yeah, it's good to be back on. I think uh, last time, Joe. Well, no, the first time I did an interview it was with Alistair, and it was like last January before COVID happened and it was on Zoom and I didn't even know what Zoom is, but now this is so normal. So I appreciate you uh, having me again. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's true. I guess Zoom was very early uh, by the time when we, when we did this last, it was, uh, yeah. we, were, we were ahead of the curve uh, in <laughs> discovering the use of Zoom. Yeah, so, so uh, and, and of course, between then, uh, a very unfortunate thing happened. Uh, I gave this, I'm just telling our audience, I, I interviewed Patrick about his, his published dissertation with Fortress Academic, and in the process of moving, uh, somehow I lost this precious book that Patrick gave me. It was signed and beautiful, and I loved it and had it on my revered shelf, but in the process of moving, I, uh, I, lost, I lost my book, but Patrick is a good a good and godly person and is sending me another one. Uh, he won't do that for you though. That's just for me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, maybe one thing to do, we're, we're approaching a book that is, you know, talking about the notion of ritual impurity within the New Testament. And there's sort of often this perception that, that Jesus sort of upsets the Jewish purity code in his ministry. Uh, and this is sort of the central thesis. The book is challenging, but maybe before we, before we get to the book's central thesis, maybe it's worth just talking about uh, the category of purity in general. It's, it seems like in the last you know, generation of scholarship, you think of Jonathan Clowens or, or Mary Douglas, there is this interest in purity, both in the ancient Near East and in, and in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish studies and in early Christian studies. Maybe help us. I think you've you've done some research into this. Maybe help us understand what are the kind of the broad movements that have taken place in purity studies. If there's a way to to, to summarize that at ten thousand feet. Yeah, no, that's that's a um, you know it all kind of started in the um, early twentieth century, right? When we had some watershed works that were put out, um, and their efforts were specifically focused on studying purity as a category in large chunks, right? For, so so like Adolf. Buchler studied it from the Bible through the Talmud, mm. um, and he started to notice some distinctions, right? A lot of times in theological studies of, of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, 
there was this conflation of what was going on and not a lot of clarity on what the purity laws were about. Um, and, and Buchler started to notice, right, that there's this distinction between these Levitical rules, which we now call ritual purity, which is what, what Jesus in the forces of death is after. And then what he called like re religious rules, uh, religious impurities, which we call moral impurity now. Mm. And he noticed, right, that the first category is not sinful, right? But it affects persons in the second category, the latter category um, is sinful, has to do with sin, and it affects the land. And so that kind of kicked things off. It was really a watershed work. And then, as you mentioned, Mary Douglas becomes very prominent, who, who essentially argued that purity has to do with systems. It's not about particularities or specificities. It's about the systems that the that the purity structures live within. And so you have to study, if you study purity, you have to study it as a system in its whole. So for her, right, purity was kind of a reflection of boundaries, um, the boundaries of creation, the boundaries of the body, the boundaries of society, et cetera, and then articulating societal, societal norms. She's most well known for saying essentially that that dirt is a matter out of place and all societies have dirt and impurity, right? So, mm. so dirt, if I'm on the beach and I'm in the sand, it's not impure, it's not dirty, but if I'm in my living room and there is dirt on the tiles, it's dirty and impure and so I have to clean it, right? And so there's how, mm. how dirt functions in different worlds that we live in, right? And so right after her, Jacob Neusner comes out and you know one of his 900 works that he wrote or something right. like that <laughs> responds to her and he conflates the two, sin and impurity. And then that kicks off kind of a new generation of scholarship. Um, which you, you kind of said, you know, Jonathan Kloans and Hannah Harrington, um, and uh, you, you've got um, uh, uh, Paula Fredrickson, notably, who kind of crossed the bridge into New Testament. And, um, and Tyson here is doing something very similar to what, what um, Paula Fredrickson does, um, and, and Cecilia Vossen in that, where they're trying to look at the New Testament, um, and in this work in particular, the Gospels and their depiction of Jesus, in conversation with Second Temple Judaism and the discussions that Second Temple Jews had mm. about purity rules, right? So that's kind of a, a, an overview of, of how we got to where we're at, where it fits into the study um, of, of purity. And do you want, you want to talk a little bit about how they started to structure it and just the basics? Yeah, of purity? yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so basically, um, and this is really prominent, I would say Jonathan Cloans is probably the most prominent scholar of, uh, he's, a, he's a, at Boston University, um, the most prominent scholar to really break down the categories into clear terms. And that gets picked up by a lot of different folks. Uh, and he works you know, at the same time with Hannah Harrington um, and others. But he basically said there are two major categories in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish mind, right? And these categories are between the profane and the sacred, and these are ontological opposites, right? The profane and the sacred, and Israel was structured by degrees of sacredness, right? So outside the camp, it was entirely profane, and right, you move closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred of places in Israel. So that's the mm -hmm. first category. And then the second one is the impure and the pure, right? And these two are ontological opposites, impurity and purity. And this kind of summarize, we might say, symbolically the way that that uh, Israel saw the world and by consequence, the way that um, that Second Temple Jews saw the world. The problem in the Hebrew Bible, though, is that often these categories, um, well, let me, let me actually just make one more distinction. Within yeah. the pure and the impure, 
you have two categories there as well, right? You have moral impurity, right? And you have ritual impurity. And uh, Tyson goes to, to great lengths to kind of make that accessible. Uh, that's what I found really helpful about this book, actually, is he made this research really accessible to folks who might not live in the field of New Testament or live in the field of Second right. Temple Judaism or something. It's, it's readable for anyone who's just has a passing interest in it. Um, so, yeah, so in this categories of ritual and moral, you've got the ritual impurities where this is highly contagious, right? If I'm ritually impure and I, in some cases, just come into to contact with other people, touch other people, or even walk in the building with someone else who is ritually impure, depending on which impurity it is, I contract that impurity, right? And it's um, in, the, in the minds of, of Jesus and the disciples in the early Christian movement, as well as other Jewish sects, um, this is kind of a real thing. This is not just an idea. This is something that, that, is, that is really existent. Um, yeah. It's highly contagious, but it's also impermanent. Ritual impurity is impermanent. The duration mm. varies based on the the, um, the type of impurity that you get. Right. It's removable, right? It's not a sin to contract these impurities. So a woman on her menstrual cycle is impure, but she's not in sin. It's a fact of life, right? It's a part of life. Um, right. Touching a dead, a, a corpse is, is another example of this. Right. However, it can lead to sin if you refuse to purify yourself. And the right. way to you purify yourself, right, is through ritual immersion in what's called a mikvot, um, which we, we have archaeological examples of this all over various Jewish cities, right? So you basically kind of immerse yourself and come out and then you are pure. So if you refuse to do that, it would become sin. Or if you approach the sacred while in a state of impurity, you would also, it, it was also a sin, right? So then right. the second so, so ritual impurity essentially keeps you out of the temple. You can't go to the temple if right. you're impure. By contrast with that, moral impurity essentially kind of forces you into the temple. Because moral purity, which is the holiness code, sexual cultic sins, and Ezekiel murder, these were prohibited violations that were punishable. There's no contact contagion. So if I'm in sin and I touch you, I don't make you impure. Um, I don't need to bathe. I can't, I can't get pure by bathing. Rather, um, rather, I need those sins purged through sacrifice, right? And so sacrifice mm. is what takes care of moral purity. So moral purity forces you into the temple. Ritual impurity keeps you away from the temple, essentially. And moral, the, the reason why moral impurity is so dangerous is because it it kind of um it is communicated to the land and to the sanctuary and so it's important that we take care of these things and that's mm. done through a one you know one day a year um to the purgation of sins and, and the atonement and such um and the reason why purity was so important to jews in the second temple period was because and, and in, the, in the hebrew bible was because Israel was set aside as a sacred people with the sacred land, with the, with the temple and purity jeopardized the presence of God among the people. So it was important to maintain purity in all of its various components. So as to maintain the presence of the spirit and the divine um, amongst Israel. And that's why Israel was set aside, which is also why, and this might be a tangent, why most scholars uh, understand Gentiles couldn't become ritually pure or ritually impure they didn't even participate in the system because they weren't set aside as israel was right so it's very important to do this and then and then you have you know in the second temple period you have all these various debates about how it actually plays out because if you read leviticus 
and you read the Old Testament, they, it doesn't always make a distinction. It doesn't say, well, now this is ritual impurity. Don't sew two things of clothes together and wear it. But this is moral impurity. Don't do this, right? Right. Um, so they just kind of use purity language uh, back and forth. Um, and so that creates this ambiguity that then gets articulated in different ways amongst different sects in the Second Temple period, of which Christianity and Jesus and the apostles are con uh, conversation partners with. And right. What Matthew Tyson makes so helpfully clear is that Jesus isn't coming in and, and critiquing the whole system and saying, throw it all away, but he's a conversation partner in how do we navigate this right. system of security, right? If right. that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Maybe a, a couple of just a, a brief follow-ups just before we get into the, the central thesis. Uh, uh, was baptism, uh, Christian baptism, uh, a, a bit idiosyncratic in that sense in that it's sort of this ritual washing of sorts and does seem to have some association with uh, uh, sin sin purification. In other words, like a moral purification seems to be somewhat at least at least symbolized in this ritual. Is does that kind of cross the cross yeah. the borders? Well, it would depend on who you're talking to, right? Because if you were talking to the Qumranites um, in the Dead Sea Scroll community, uh, they would say no because the Qumranites conflated the two. So ritual and moral impurity were conflated into basically ah, okay. category. Um, okay. But if you were talking to rabbinic Jews, um, which are where the Pharisees are kind of the, the precedent for that, they would say, yeah, that is a little weird because they compartmentalize the two into two very um, clearly demarcated categories. If you're talking to Philo, for example, um, he would say not really because, well, um, ritual purity is kind of symbolic of the moral purity that happens in the soul. Um, right. So, so it really would depend on who. There's a little about. bit of an overlapping Venn diagram in some of the cases, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's why it's important to ask these questions of uh, to understand this background, because then you can see how the conversation works. Because you notice like in John's baptism, for example, John's baptism is very clearly for the repentance of sins. Right. So it has a very strong moral dimension to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and you, you kind of see this in Christian baptism as well. However, and I hope we, we get a chance to talk about this. I think there's some real significance um, in working with Tyson's thesis about ritual impurity being uh, a symbolic link to death. Um, right. The forces of death that happen in creation and Paul's language of being baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm. There's this almost kind of. Um, yeah, and it's worth making that explicit that uh, I, if I'm understanding correctly, one of the things that's come out in the last sort of century of purity studies, and this is perhaps old and commonplace in, in scholarship by now, but maybe people in the pew haven't heard it, and that is that uh, one of the things I guess that makes sense out of all the Old Testament purity codes and is part of the inner logic of the Second Temple discussion is that uh, the, impure, the impure things have an association with death. This is the, uh, I guess that's the kind of inner logic here is that, that uh, uh, you know, if you're, the, the leper is sort of like uh, on his way, to, Yahweh is the living one, and, and it's unsafe to approach the, you know, the absolutely living one uh, with sort of, sort of death wrapped around you in some way. And so the, the leper is one version of that. And the discharges, I guess, were read as sort of like a, uh, either a man's seminal emission or a woman's cycle was sort of seen as like life being kind of given away in a certain, certain sort of way. A little less life is in you, <laughs> I guess you could say, if uh, or something like this. Is this 
Is there a better yeah. way to say all that? Yeah, yeah, it depends on, again, it depends on who you're talking to. I tend to lean more toward, I think there is a lot of connection there with, with death and ritual impurities and such. And I think uh, Tyson brings that out very, very well. I tend to lean a little bit more towards Mary Douglas on that. Um, who really connects impurities with broken boundaries, right? And mm. in a sense, kind of the brokenness of creation, right? So she, when she's talking about food laws, for example, she says essentially that you have um, in creation, you have these different spheres of creation. You have the land and the waters and the firmament, right? And the animals that are considered impure are those animals that cross the boundaries, right? So, so uh, something that lives in the sea but doesn't swim and walks around is impure, right? So mm. lots of crap. Um, the birds that are supposed to, that, that are birds, but don't fly are considered impure. The, the, uh, the, the pig that um, chews, uh, that, that is hooved, but doesn't chew the, uh, chew the cud, it presents in some way, but it crosses the boundary and it, it is considered impure. And so I tend to see <coughs> this idea of broken boundaries is really, really important in sort of the, I guess you might say the, the cultural schema of, you know, something that is supposed to be in one place when it leaves that place, it makes the thing impure. Um, so blood is supposed to be in our body, but when it comes out through the menstrual cycle, it makes impurity or semen is right. These kinds of ideas of, of boundaries and brokenness. That's kind of where I lean when I think yeah. about impurities. I'm pretty heavily influenced by Mary Douglas on that. But, okay. but yes, I do think that still is pretty, I, I think all of that is still in the biblical scheme of thinking is still connected with death, right? Because the brokenness of creation is connected to sin and death, right? Both of these right. are categories that work. They're not complete um, kind of, they're not like completely uh, carved off from each other, but they work together. Um, and I think that's- yeah important that's to. very that's very helpful yeah that's that's very interesting well maybe we should then talk just uh briefly about the thesis of the book itself i mean it, i mean it's very fairly easy to state and we've already hinted at it which is that jesus is not uh as you said jesus is a car, a conversation partner with this sort of tradition of interpreting ritual purity uh and his whole argument of course is that jesus is not sort of throwing away the system or even violating it but that given his unique status and and, and uh his unique uh, his unique mission uh he's coming into contact with impurity and then overcoming it i mean this is sort of the central thesis he actually assumes in a way the the system of impurities and then confronts it directly in a, in a unique way given his you know sort of given his mission so i mean i guess the uh, 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 yeah, the first thing to say would be like, you would be in a better position to evaluate, you know, whether he was successful in defending his thesis or not. And so I'm going to throw it over to you. What did you think about the central claim of the book? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I was in full agreement with it. Um, I mean, I think there were maybe one or two things that I, I quibbled with, but, um, honestly, I, the book I thought was very well written. It was very accessible, very easy, but I don't think it would be kind of news to anyone in New Testament scholarship, right? Um, this is right. kind of stuff Paula Fredrickson's been saying for a very, very long time. Um, and, and he did it in a very accessible way that I thought was helpful. And he kind of, I thought I appreciated how he kind of brought all the gospels together and showed various nuances throughout different gospel accounts. But I think he's spot on there. And I bring this up very, you know, and if anyone's ever taken my gospel classes at either RTS or Davenant, 
I spend a lot of time talking about purity because I think there's something really, really phenomenal happening in the Gospels. If you put yourself in, in the shoes of a Second Temple Jew, where Jesus physically confronts impurity, right? He, he touches things that are supposed to convey cont contagion to him. And yet the Gospels produce this shocking revelation that it's, in fact, Jesus who's the one that conveys purity, right? He destroys, right. as I think Tyson really articulates well, he destroys the source of impurity in that person and makes them pure, in a sense, or, and then tells them to go be declared pure by the priest. Um, and so he has this power to him that is very much connected to the sources of impurity, which, again, I think are tied very heavily to the brokenness of old creation and the inbreaking of new creation right. right and fixing fixing that brokenness that occurred through the fall and so there's this reversal of the fall language and and ideas that are being communicated um and then it's it's pinnacle is in the death of jesus who who's risen from the dead right who who is um raised from the dead rather by the father the death could not hold him because the, the, the sort of the ultimate impurity meeting the purity himself in a yeah. sense and couldn't yeah i couldn't yeah yeah that's that's fascinating and i loved his uh he had this i, I don't think i'd ever put together the kind of significance of this this story where you have this hemorrhaging woman uh and she goes and and sort of seizes the cloak of christ and power comes out of him and i never kind of put together there's almost a parallel uh just as the woman has this kind of uh you get the image of somebody who's who things are coming out of this woman because she's unhealthy and she touches jesus and involuntarily in fact uh, which is very much emphasized in this text. You know, something leaves his body, but it's not impurity. It's actually purity that's sort of discharged, if you will, from him just by virtue of being, you know, being near him, just by touching him. Uh, and it overcomes her. It sort of beats, you know, beats her. Dis his discharge beats hers in a sense. Uh, and it's sort of like the, the metaphor is actually quite explicit in a sense when you, you know, when you read it in that language or when you read it through the purity codes. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's helpful. Those I, I think what he does is he goes through these various accounts and it's very helpful to see the message of the gospels in conversation with how 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 purity functions and what Jesus's mission and role was um, in relation to that. I yeah, that was really good. How do we how do we put it in conversation with the rest of the New Testament? Because of course he's he's focusing on um, uh, the Gospels mainly and the ministry of Jesus and Jesus' relationship to purity. But of course you move over into the epistles uh, and you read Paul and he's talking to the Gentiles and a lot of the purity codes, even if they're not negated uh, uh, in in, a, in any absolute sense. Nevertheless, there do seem to be communities where the purity codes are, well, they're not functioning in quite the same way because they're, you know, they're Gentile communities. And Paul is sort of saying, let them, let them be Gentiles. <laughs> you know, like uh, 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 what, what would you say sort of happens with this discussion as we, as we move into the kind of the Jew-Gentile uh, stage of the church and its development? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I've given a lot of thought to, but not really... Um structured thought. I've kind of got, toyed with a few ideas on how, specifically how Paul is using that, because Paul doesn't really talk very much about ritual purity. It's not really one of his categories that he uses very often. In mm. fact, many of the New Testament writers don't really deal much with ritual purity. They all deal with moral purity, right? Right. Paul, especially, I mean, read 1 Corinthians, where Paul's like, shun uh, porneia, and shun, uh, these are all kind of the ideas that, um, 
uh, uh, that are very clear in moral purity categories. But Paul's not really concerned. It doesn't seem very much with ritual purity so much, um, unless you look at Galatians and the eating stuff. But that's a complicated uh, little passage that has a lot of debate about it. And it right. But um, and the, the church at its earliest stage was heavily Jewish, right? Um, right. So, so the fact that Paul's not going into these very in-depth articulations about how to navigate these purity, that we, how to navigate ritual purity, I find very, very interesting, actually. Um, and I think that there might be, just as I've sort of toyed with it, I, I think that there, right, so think about it. Paul is very explicit in how he describes the church. He calls the church uh, the the body, right? Which is yeah. the, the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about your body. And he's talking in the plural, right? He's discussing the church. He's not talking about our individual bodies. Right. So he's talking about the body of the Corinthians is in fact the temple. And right. that body, that temple is where the spirit of holiness dwells, right? This is language of the Jerusalem temple. And it's not altogether it's not altogether uh, unique. I mean, the Qumran community thought the same thing to a certain degree. They saw them. Well, it's a fairly universal metaphor. In fact, I think just in religions in general, the body and the temple and the community are very often uh, sort of linked together. And the cosmos, in fact, uh, seem to be in a lot of religious traditions kind of linked together as a thread. There's sort of a, a parody between the yeah. These realms. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you also have like, like for in, 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 and you have these discussions taking place, right? in Second Temple Judaism, because one of the big questions was, is the, is the temple legit or not? Mm. And the, the reason why it wouldn't be legit was because they weren't following the proper purity laws. Ah. Um, so if, if the temple priests were not following purity rules as they were supposed to, the temple was defunct in a sense, right? And Qumran thought that actually. And that's why the Qumran community saw themselves as sort of not a replacement temple, but they saw themselves as kind of like a holding, like a like a placeholder of a temple. Right. And they were there. And once God returned in the apocalypse, um, the temple's purity and, uh, and sanctity would return and they would no longer have to be this placeholder of a temple. But Paul seems to be do doing something a little bit different, right? He's almost saying like, hey, you as a church, you are the body and the spirit dwells in your presence when you are together, right? In a very similar way, you know, and, um, and in a very similar way as the temple function in Jerusalem. Um, and then you have various kind of hints, I think, I think that this idea of baptism as connected with the resurrection is, is very important in my kind of in my estimation. So the things that I've kind of toyed with just in my mind and I haven't really clearly articulated in them, just kind of exploring ideas. This is great. This is what this is for. <laughs> is that, you know, perhaps there is something like, perhaps there is something like through our baptism, you know, we are, we are in a sense brought into the new creation, right? We are brought out of the brokenness of creation and brought into this, this new creation that is typified in the temple. And in that, so, so kind of, in, in a sense, kind of dealing with ritual impurity, and then also dealing with moral impurity, we participate in the sacrifice of Christ through the, through the Lord's Supper, right? And this is why, because of the constant um, participations in, uh, because of the constant 
participation in the Lord's Supper, uh, perhaps this is why we have this need in First Corinthians, where if someone continues to um, continues to kind of pile up moral impurities, it's important that you cut him out of the body, right? Move him, cast him out of the body to right. maintain the purity of the body, because the body itself is dependent for its purity, its moral purity on Christ's sacrifice for us. But when we are brought into that body, we are done so in a sense by virtue of our faith, which is seen in covenant form with that, that baptism, that purification, that right. Body so to speak, that, that, um, that makes us a new creation, right? Is it, in, right. In idea. Um, right. So, so that's kind of what I've toyed with, right? Because there's this common assumption that when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, you know, maybe he's just spiritualizing sacrifice here um, and just kind of using it as metaphor. But I think that right. if we understand how purity worked and the importance of sacrifice for moral purity and washing for ritual purity, if we think about those and understand those as categories, I think it might help us understand Right, how baptism and the Lord's Supper function in making us a new creation and keeping us in the body, the temple. Um, of, yeah, of yeah, that's really, yeah, that would, yeah, that would be a very interesting, yeah, that's a very interesting set of connections. I'd love to see that, yeah, solidified. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you know, you're talking about your thoughts, and maybe this is, you know, this is the place to say, like, there, you know, your own, your own work was basically on, or is, and, and was basically upon the the manner in which the message of resurrection and the embodiment of resurrection in, in, in liturgy and the marking of calendar time and such uh, shaped a community of persons who were sort of sort of sort of uh, uh, not subject to the to the power of Caesar in quite the same way because they because well Jesus released them from the fear of death and there's an interesting there's an interesting connection here in that like you have this book here basically arguing here's actually the concrete ways in which Jesus showed himself. Uh, to be uh, sort of triumphant over death uh, in very concrete ways. Do you see this in the, uh, I just, this is something you'd be aware of, do you see this uh, kind of rhetorically emphasized, this theme picked up upon in any of the sort of early Christian study or, or, you know, in the early church, the idea that, I don't know, the minute you, you actually witness, um, obviously the resurrection is the central event where it's sort of like, Hey, this guy was crucified on a cross, and now he's risen again. <laughs> That's the sort of central way we know Jesus yeah. defeated death. But do you see this kind of uh, more holistic approach to Jesus' defeat of death and his war with death in, in early exegesis or anything like that in the reading of the Gospels? Um, I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. I. I haven't. Um, I mean, I think it. I think theoretically, it, like it works, right? I just yeah, yeah. And that would actually that would actually be a study that I'd be really interested in seeing. Um, and I just haven't had the time to go into it. I've always wanted to, but I just never have had the time because I have so many different ideas and projects yeah. that I'm always working on. This is one that um, I, I really fascinated by. But you know, what what were the conversations that early Christians had about ritual purity and death and all of that? I would be really curious to see a source book on that and kind of read through that. Um, you know, it really wasn't the focus of my research. So I didn't really hone in on those things. You know, when you're researching, you're kind of looking for what you need um, and other stuff, you read it, but it kind of goes, goes into the back brain. And I don't, I don't really remember particularly, but yeah, I mean, I do think that there is very clearly this kind of confrontation with death that occurs um, in, in the resurrection of Jesus in particular uh, and conquering that, um, the effects of sin. I mean, Paul talks about this, right? Oh, death, you know, sin and death, where's your sting? The victory yeah. of that in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, 
And so I think if we were to think about it, if, if ritual purity was connected with death, as Tyson argues and Jacob Milgram and others, um, then, and if this kind of schema of thinking about the world was so prominent in the minds of Jews of the Second Temple period, I would not be surprised to see Paul thinking about himself in conversation with that, but I don't think of it. I can't think of anywhere where it's explicit off the top of my head. Right. Right. Well, that one of the, one of the things that I, I uh, was thinking about as I read this book and the reason I wanted to read this book on, on purity and impurity in first century Judaism is because I've been, I've been really influenced by a, there's, it's really a single line, but Robert Bella writes this book, uh, religion in human evolution. Uh, and of course, he, he brings different to some, you can tell from the title, perhaps he brings different assumptions to sort of the development of religion than I would. Uh, nevertheless, he, he has this interesting line, his central thesis in the book is something like this. He says, nothing is ever lost. Uh, and so you look back at this history, you know, we tend to look back and see early religion where you're seeing sacrifice and purity and impurity and all this kind of stuff. And it's such a foreign world to us. But one of the things he's trying to say is that for all the accretions and for all the complexities that, that exist in contemporary, uh, you know, our contemporary relationship to God or the way people self-conceive of that, um, all the, the motifs, these structures all show up in some way still. You never fully get rid of it. And so one of the things that it makes me want to think about, and I think it's interesting to look at it this way, is are there ways in which uh, almost the, the concept of ritual impurity or moral impurity still show up in contemporary consciousness, but maybe in a way that's, you know, again, we look at this and we think, well, that's so foreign, what a weird world. But, uh, you know, I wonder if somebody could, you know, standing above both of us could say, oh no, you're, you're actually very similar to that, but it, you, the way you're similar to it is so close to your face that you can't even see it. You can't see that you do the same thing. Is there a way in which you think these kinds of categories show up subtly in our own culture and civilization? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no question about that. I think a lot of that has to do with um, just the simple reality that, uh, and I find this is where I think Mary Douglas is most helpful, right? Is, is this simple reality that when there is defilement or dirt, um, we need to order it. We need a systematic ordering of, of how we deal with that. And so the question that is not necessarily, is there dirt? Is there pollution? The question is, what is pollution for us? And how do we deal with that pollution? Right. And so for, mm. for Israel, that pollution was very much tied to creation. It was tied to God's ordering of creation. It was tied to uh, the temple. For us, I would say for us, I think in our, our modern period, pollution is very much tied to money and health. I mean, that's that's kind of what makes makes our society mm. thick. Right. And but but you even see this in little ways. I mean, you know, you, you go to most nice if you go to a nice neighborhood, a, a neighborhood mm. that is well to do, you know, all the bushes will be he trimmed well. Right. You have very clear lines on where the, the grass meets the uh, meets the, the um, driveway and everything is kind of ordered and it's put in order. And we kind of have this desire to take um, nature and order it if it's in our space but if you go out to the woods nobody's ordering nature right it's in its place mm. there but if it's in my place i have to order it and i have to put it in its in its uh, in, in its boundaries um to hold it you know kind of in relation to my own being in that place yeah but, but i think you know what um what mary douglas is is helpful to do like is she draws some attention to ways we do this right and we justify it we often say it's right for health 
or we say it's to, to keep our, um, you know, trying to avoid disease or something like that. But we have rituals. I mean, spring cleaning is a ritual in our culture. Yeah. It has nothing really to do with the way we try to avoid disease or anything like that. But it is a very clear uh, purity ritual that we have in Western culture. Yeah. Um, it's ways that we're intending to keep disorder out of our material space that we, that we live in. Um, and often, you know, the ways that we justify some of the things that we do are sheer fantasy, right? The ways that we overuse um, Purell on our hands. And this is especially poignant right now in times of COVID, right? Yeah. Where you, have, you have this, um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm like, right. you know, we don't need to wash our hands. Sanitize your hands, everybody. We're not against it, but yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but sometimes, you know, it's... Um, what we do is, is we have, because we have microbiology now, what we are, we're, we do the same kinds of things. We just shove it under the, under the valence of science, right? And say, listen to the scientists. Yes. But a lot of these are just rituals that we do, right? So I think from that perspective, absolutely, we have, um, we have pollution and we have ritualistic ways of dealing with that pollution. In um, it's often fantasy. Uh, it's not just scientific. Um, so we don't have this, like, you know, there's, you'll have someone who is not contagious, but we're still afraid to be around them and touch them, even though scientifically they're not contagious in certain diseases. Right, right. right. That's still that fear that exists, that social fear. Um, but I also think it's true culturally. If we think about like in, um, you think about like the second temple period and, and the Hebrew Bible and that, you know, when the menstruating, when the woman was in menstruation, she was cast outside, she was put outside the camp, right? Kind of ostracized in a certain sense. Um, or, you know, someone who, who was the leper was, was put outside. And so I think we do this very much um, in our own culture. And I think it is again connected. And I think it's Bruce Molina, if I remember right, who makes this argument in, in some article um, that the people that we ritualistically separate are those who are poor and those who are dying and don't communicate life, right? So if you look at uh, the elderly, for example, um, yes. generally when they get to the point of dying, we, we hold them up in a very secure, secluded mm. state, right? Um, or we create homeless camps, right? That are on the outskirts of society. And when they move to the insides of the city, well, then you've got everyone's in an uproar because they're not on the outsides of our society. So really, I think it functions around money and health. I actually do. I actually think this is connected a little bit with Foucault's idea of biopower as well, how the way that the power works now, it's about maintaining life and vitality. And these two things create a problem for life and vitality. And so we want to ignore them. Right. Well, life and vitality defined on relative, a single register in, in one sense. Yeah. And the yeah. other the other, um, interestingly, the other, maybe uh, to, to add a third category to the two you identified, it might also be the, um, uh, the, the mentally handicapped are also very yeah. often, interestingly, sort of put in a home or something. It, when I was a kid, I remember being at school and I just, I remember even in public school, I just remember being around uh, mentally handicapped persons and it was just, it was just normal. It's part of life. There's always, you know, one around, you know, and, and it seems like increasingly in the last, you know, 30 years as I've, as I've grown up, as it were, uh, there seemed to be a lot more sort of like, let's, let's pull them all over. And there's, there can be reasons for that, you know, special needs. There, there might be practical reasons for that. Nevertheless, like, uh, you know, stand-up comedians, in fact, make jokes about this, like, where did they all go? <laughs> it's like, 
we have quite literally in some ways perhaps put them where same thing we do with the elderly right yeah. an old folks home uh, yeah. and, and of course the another way in which we see these categories functioning uh, uh, this this would be maybe more on the, the moral impurity side but most certainly I think the, the logic of the kind of uh, the, the way in which we use language like such and such leads to violence and of course you can put you can put a bunch of things into the category of this grain of an idea will lead to violence. And so what, what very often the way we're evaluating people in churches or friendships or communities is sort of like, here's this guy who based upon, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, you know sort of shibboleth is my thing. Uh, if he violates that thing or he disagrees with me about this thing over here, well, that little kernel in him is going to infect the community and lead to violence. And so we kind of need to get that guy just out of here lest the cancer spread. And of course, that's a, a fairly unsustainable way to have a thriving communal life. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's a weird, uh, to, just to use the word, interestingly, um, there's a way in which I, I, th in, I think Tom Holland showed this recently, that there's a, there's a case to be made that, the, that a lot of, at least in its extreme, we might say, that the water, modern woke movement uh, is, is to some, can be, because there's, there's people that are doing good work on that side of things, but it can be an inheritor in a very ironic way of sort of Puritanism. <laughs> it's a very secularized Puritanism, but it has the same sort of like rigorous communal standard. It's a different standard than the classical one in some sense, but there's a very rigorous communal purity code, if you will. And if you violate the purity code, you're impure. And if you're unrepentant of the impurity, uh, well, then you just need to be kind of removed. You know, you sort of need to be uh, ostracized from the community. Uh, and so it's interesting to me. And of course, there's Christian conservative Christian versions of this as well. But it's interesting to see these kind of primitive, almost what we what we're looking at this, the, the, these sort of Jewish texts and these New Testament texts, and these feel like very primitive structures. But it only takes stepping outside of yourself and staring at your own life a little bit to realize, no, we all do this still. <laughs> sacrifice, we still sacrifice quite literally, in fact. Uh, uh, and it's, it's fascinating to me to see uh, uh, and when we see that about ourselves, what's interesting is I think these texts come alive and these themes come alive because they're speaking very directly in some way to, yeah, to ourselves and to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's really helpful. I think a really helpful way of looking at it. Um, you, you sort of like the article you wrote, right. Two kind of pills of the same variety of, you know, casting people out and such. Uh, yes. No, oh, I thought you froze. Yeah, no, that was me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so, and I think what's helpful when we can kind of think about it from from sort of a, a faith perspective, though, is that at, at the core of all of this, it's I think it really does come down to us trying to control, right? Control creation in a certain sense, and control mm. our our fallibility, control our weaknesses um, in some small way. And I think the beauty of of meeting Christ. Is that is that he? You know, when you, when you give up control to Christ, he's the one who overcomes the source of that need to be in control and 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 demarcate boundaries and be safe, right? And so so I think, and I think that's kind of the beauty of the gospel message is you meet with Christ and he is the one who overcomes that source of impurity and then yeah. brings you into new creation, right? You know, where, where you're able to kind of be around. Um, yeah, I think the mentally ill is, is a great example. Mary Douglas actually talks about that as well. Um, and so does Foucault in, in Abnormal, this idea that we created a category of abnormal so that we could put them kind of on the outskirts 
to maintain our own normality, right? To maintain the idea yeah. that we're normal. So you need an abnormal to be normal. Um, yep. right? Yeah, capitalism, uh, uh, the, the, Scott Sandage writes this book about capitalism requiring the, uh, the character of the loser. We actually need the loser and yeah. we need stories about the loser because that's, that's yeah, exactly. It's, and it, it shows up everywhere, it's fascinating. Um, yeah, that's, that's it, very interesting. Um, right. Well, this has been very helpful, Patrick. Uh, any, any final thoughts about the book? Uh, any, uh, any uh, last things that are worth mentioning? No, I, I would just say, I mean, I, I recommend it. I think it's really helpful, especially if you're not familiar with um, conversations in Second Temple Judaism. It's a really, really helpful, readable, accessible, introductory kind of work toward that with some really powerful ideas, I think. I, I think it was I, I enjoyed it. Um, I would have I would have appreciated a little bit more just because the way I think connection with how biblical theology works and how Pauline theology mm. works. That wasn't his project. I understand that. Um, you know, so so a lot of it, as I read it, a lot of it was just most of it was just rehashing stuff I had already known because I'd read other stuff. Right. But it's very yeah. books who are not who are not kind of living in the field or have lived at a time in the field of New Testament, Second Temple of Judaism debates and sectarianism and such. Right. So, that's, yeah, that's, that's, it. that's very helpful. Yeah. Last thing I'll say is uh, uh, one of the things that I've been I've been reading and this is it's interesting. It just it happens to connect. But I've been reading uh, the uh, uh, Ferdinand. Uh, am I getting his first name correctly? But Ulrich uh, Homo Abyssus, which is this kind of 20th century metaphysical text that's just been translated into English. But one of his big themes uh, is the manner in which, and he's drawing on Kierkegaard and others here, but the manner in which when love, when, when if you want to find love in the world, go give love and then you'll find it. And there's this interesting way in which just phenomenologically, love is the kind of thing that if I if I if if you if you speak to somebody, if you move towards somebody with the love of Christ, as though they might respond to the love, you create the very conditions in which love is actually created in them. And you can yeah. see this in real time. And it's interesting, that's exactly the kind of that's exactly kind of the strategy of the New Testament is, hey, go be friends to the world, get out there and love people. <laughs> this is sort of the, you know, with your whole person speaking the truth, but also with the body, sort of a whole person's love to face of love toward the world. And the interesting thing is you see a, uh, you see a, a kind of parallel motion through the spirit that that actually gives love to the world. It doesn't corrupt. It's not, a, it's, it's not ultimately then corrupting the Christian to bring the light into the darkness is actually to push the darkness back. It's not for the darkness to, to kind of overcome the light. Uh, and so there's even almost more basic philosophical and metaphysical categories, interestingly to me, that have some parallel with the way uh, uh, Jesus and the forces of death are sort of confronting themselves. Uh, yeah. And so interesting. Yeah. Very fascinating. But Anyway, well, thanks very much, brother, for coming and talking with us about this book. I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll have occasion to pick your brain again. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining us again today. Uh, that's it for for now, and uh, we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.